Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everyone, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by my colleagues, as usual, is the uh, Curtis Wister and Abby Duty, the L.L. Bean and Rennies to my Martins. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> doing good. good. How are you, ben? I'm good. I'm good. Always like to, to kind of dig into new topics and new things always on the show. But one thing that I think with our clients that uh, they, there's just always a lot of questions around estate planning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, earlier in our shows, we actually had two estate planners come on and he talked about the importance of having an up-to-date estate plan, right? And mm-hmm. that's something we see every day is people mm-hmm. come to us for the first time. Do you have an estate plan? No. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, that's something where in our experience as financial planners, we're trying to get things organized and structured. And and I think that's something where, you know, for us, we want to make sure that those sorts of things are up to date in terms of estate plans and wills. And again, sometimes they don't have them or maybe they even date back 30 years ago when we had kids or, or things along those lines. So we all know that we need to keep them up to date. Yeah. But what we don't know is maybe there's some common mistakes that we as in Mainers may be making by not executing a state plan, or maybe there's an old will that doesn't keep up with our wishes or state law. Perhaps or you know, we don't share some of the information or all the information that pertinent with our estate planning attorney so that they can make the best plan for us, including our wishes and what our families want. So we really want to have that process about about kind of post-death what happens, but also how things can go right with our estate plans and how things can go wrong. So that's really the premise of today's show. Mm. So enter someone that has uh, helped her clients prepare themselves and loved ones for life events by designing personalized legal documents so that they can carry out their wishes and protect their assets. So our guest, uh, she's on the executive committee for the uh, for legal services for the elderly in Maine, the Maine Justice Action Group. And she's a member of the Academy of Special Needs Planners and advisor to the Peaks Islands Fund, uh, which is a Maine Community Foundation fund. Uh, she also teaches elder law as an adjunct faculty at the uh, University of Maine School of Law and as a member attorney of the Maine Center for Elder Law, LC, which was prior to the center merging with Perkins Thompson in September of 2019. So I'd like to welcome at this time, uh, Barbara Slishman uh, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. How are you doing today, Barbara? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, well, thanks for coming on. Again, uh, as what we always like to do with uh, our guests is get a little bit into you in terms of your history, your background. Could you just share with us uh, just your story about growing up? Sure. I grew up in the breadbasket. I grew up in Missouri, <laughs> right in the middle of this great country. Okay. And I moved to Maine about almost 22 years ago. And I moved directly to Peaks Island because when we were moving here, we learned that people lived on islands. And having grown up in Missouri, in our minds, we were thinking, who wouldn't want to live on an island? <laughs> 
that's what we did. So I moved to Peaks Island and um, and I've been here. I've, I've come back and forth a bit with jobs, but I always come back to Maine. I feel like it kind of has a rubber band effect. It's just a beautiful place. It's got a uh, great quality of life. I love the landscape, the mountains, the ocean, and I'm happy to call Maine home. Yeah. I, I love that because, again, I, I think we're, you know, the consistent thing we see with a lot of a lot of our guests, but also our clients and people that we talk to is Maine just has a really great gravity to it. You know, is it's, mm-hmm. you know, the people and four seasons and there's lots of, I know there's things that people don't like about it, of course, but, uh, you know, for there's lots of positives here that, yeah. you know, which is why we're all here and, and uh, it's a really great place to live and work and play. Love to hear a little bit about your path towards law, right? So why law? When did that start and why did you, why did you go that path? Yeah, that's, you know, I think um, like most people, we all have a winding path to where we end up. And so um, I did my undergrad at the University of Missouri, which has a great journalism school, and I studied journalism, but I knew I wanted to get a, uh, a graduate degree of some sort, and I wasn't sure what to do. So a couple of my advisors had law degrees also, and so they encouraged me. They said, go ahead and go to law school. You'll have your graduate degree, and you will also have a law degree that will always be useful. So my goal, and I did do this for quite some time, was to work as a reporter and work in journalism, which I did. I was actually, when CNN went online for CNN.com, I was there, there was a woman who designed and got it started. And then I was the first editor they hired for CNN.com slash law. So, you know, so I've had some, the law degree has dovetailed with journalism and gave me some great opportunities in terms of teaching and working. And I did that for about 15 years. And then um, and then I was ready for a career change. And that coincided with wanting to get back to Maine full time. So where journalism jobs, they were being cut back and I was ready for a change anyway. I decided I would practice law. And so this is about 12 or 13 years ago. But um, so I had to take the bar exam in Maine, which anyone who's gone to law school knows that's quite an undertaking, especially yes. a decade after law school that I did mm-hmm. it studied for a year. And um, I settled on elder law, which is what I've been doing for 10 years, which is a lot of um, dealing with capacity issues and special needs issues, in addition to traditional estate planning, which we'll talk about. And I think that kind of came about, I was doing some um, lay ministry work through the Episcopal Church, which had me in nursing homes. Mm. And so those two things dovetailed together. And I realized it would be an area of law I would enjoy just talking with people. And I mentioned journalism because I think that also plays into my current work. A lot of what I do is listening to people and having to learn about people. And it's probably similar with financial planning. You have to hear what people's stories are. You have to kind of tease out what they really want and what their desires are. And so in estate planning, that's a big piece of it. And you also have to be able to identify these trouble spots where potential problems could arise. You know, I sometimes feel bad that I'm pointing out to people all the ways things that could go wrong could go wrong. But I point out to them that that's my job, right? I'm supposed to be able to identify (laughs) the worst case scenario Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. know how we are going to deal with that worst case scenario or how to prevent it. So, um, yeah, so I feel like 
journalism played into that, that I'm comfortable talking with people, asking questions, and then distilling it down to a really manageable group of information to work with. I like that because I think with our team, as we try to approach it too, is, you know, I, I think from a, a financial planning end, we spend a lot of time on with that similar thread that you just pointed out, right, is like, let's spend a lot of time on the bad scenarios and the worst case scenarios. And let's think about strategies that we can help minimize that. And that sometimes you just can't eliminate those potentials. But you can minimize that and let's spend because if we spend a lot of time there, then I think you're leaving a lot of the upside room to happen as well. And so that and that allows us now more flexibility going forward because we've kind of avoided some of the disastrous outcomes to allow for kind of here where things are. And and that's where, you know, Abbott and I just got off a meeting this morning with a client. That was a lot of what we've talked about is the downside, but now it's now we're gone forward and, and things are maybe a little bit better than what we had hoped. And now you can reverse uh, plan that, right? Is maybe there's a higher level of income needs or things. So it, it just it ebbs and flows, right? And all these things. And, and I, I really like what you said there. And, and one thing I want to point out, um, we had a guest on a few episodes ago, her name is Elisa Spain, but she was talking about uh, a lot of people as we go through our career, they they navigate their careers. And it sounds like you've gone through this career 2.0, right? Is, hey, yeah, I got I got the master's degree uh, in getting the law degree, getting into journalism. But you know, that those skills perfectly then go to this new practice area where, yeah, I'm doing elder law, which is now kind of where I want to be. But all those things that kind of add up in our lives, which is a really cool element that we see is, you know, for all of us and our, our kind of experiences together. So kudos to that, because I know that's always a tough change is it's scary. It's new. Can I do it? So I'd love to hear a little bit about what do you love about your job today? That's a good question. I find my work is very satisfying because I work directly with my clients. I have a lot of face-to-face client interaction. In estate planning, you often have many clients. You know, it's some areas of law, you have just a few very big clients, but in estate planning, you have a lot of clients. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's kind of a high volume work. And with that, you get to know a lot of people and, um, Yeah, I I like talking and interacting with people, but it's also very gratifying when I help people get some peace of mind or resolution for Mm -hmm. issues that are keeping them up at night. And with estate planning, we really are dealing with the issues that are most important to people. We're dealing with who's going to take care of their family after they die. How is their money going to be managed? Um, especially if there's somebody in the family with special needs. And that could be a child with special needs or a spouse who has developed a diagnosis like dementia, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, or acquired brain injury. See, I, I, can, I can list all kinds of things that can <laughs> sure. go wrong. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, those are the issues that we hold dear to our heart. Who is going to take care of these people I love? How will I know they're going to be cared for and have a quality of life. And so through estate planning, we do that. And in addition to planning for the people, you're also planning for the stewardship of what people have earned and created throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, people put for their life into their savings, their businesses, paying for their houses, 
and they want to make sure that that is um, curated in a proper way and that their family can benefit from all of that hard work. So I find it very satisfying, even just after an initial consultation, people have been struggling and, you know, say they're a caregiver and they're worn out. They don't know what to do. They don't know how they're going to pay for a nursing home and all these questions. And in one meeting, to be able to make somebody feel better and let them know that there are answers to these questions and they're not going to be impoverished and there is a way to do it. It, it feels good to be able to give that type of emotional relief over such big issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially where I, I think we're, again, just even being part of those meetings in terms of sitting down with somebody and, and coming to an estate planner's office is this, you can just feel the weight of the world on their shoulders when they come in, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're, mm -hmm. that's, uh, they're, they're really big issues and maybe they're, they have a spouse that became incapacitated in some way, or they have to make decisions for them. Maybe they've never had to make decisions for them before, right? Maybe they've always been not making decisions in that part of their life. Yeah, all of those things, and they just don't know what to do. They're really paralyzed by it. So I've seen it too, this this big sense of relief when they kind of walk out afterwards of, okay, I now know what I need to do. I now know I have someone to talk to when I need to work these things through. And it just allows them to, I think, to move forward themselves. Because it feels like they're in that moment themselves and they're just paralyzed. It's the only thing that's on their mind and they just can't come to a conclusion. So I want to I wanna really dig in to the show topic today, uh, Barbara, is to really get into this sense about estate planning, kind of a 2.0 for us, is we, we've kind of covered the basics, what's an estate plan and a will and, and power of attorneys and, and that. We just wanted to go a little bit more advanced, a little deeper today. Okay. And one of the things we've seen from uh, our clients in, in the biggest issues it, around incomplete and non-existent estate plans is really the amount of family fighting that happens after death, right? Is, is It can sometimes really break up a family permanently. Can you talk about how you've seen that play out as someone passes away? And really, the, again, the concept of doesn't mean that families can't be fighting regardless, because yeah. we all, I think we all do that in terms of we all love each other, but we can kind of love each other different ways. But I'd love to just hear what, you know, just kind of this structure of if it's not really complete, how it can kind of worsen the outcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, so just as I was saying earlier, that we're dealing with issues that people hold most dear, right? Caring mm -hmm. for their families. And if if somebody dies, and a child feels insulted or mm -hmm. that they were treated unfairly that's very very hard for people to come to peace with because the person they need to come to peace with is gone right mm -hmm. so it's yeah. how do you it's hard to get resolution if there's nobody to get resolution with and in the cases that get difficult i don't feel like they just come out of the blue i feel mm -hmm. like you know if a fa if it's going to devolve into a contentious administration of the estate or trust, there is already stress and there are already warning signs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something very important for people to think about when they're designing their estate plan. If those warning signs are there, you need to plan for them because what can happen is if you have siblings who one of them feels like the other one is treated as a favorite and then the estate plan plays out that way, you know, you get like a 2080 split or something. It, it's just concrete evidence th that what they always suspected is true. So to get to your question, ways that this plays out, 
it can play out with with siblings being very ugly to each other. Mm-hmm. And for a while, they'll get really volatile. I literally, coincidentally, about 30 seconds before we launched this call, I just took a phone call from someone where one of the siblings wrote a really long, awful diatribe about the surviving sibling. Mm-hmm. But I but the, those issues were going on beforehand. But what happens is it's kind of hard to file a lawsuit on this. So ways it goes bad are if you've got a sibling, say, with mental illness, that's a big warning sign to watch for. If somebody has mental illness, they can cling to these uh, estate administration issues or they can create. It gives them food to culture their paranoid thoughts like Mm -hmm information is being kept from me. I'm not being treated Mm. fairly. I'm not receiving what I'm supposed to receive. You know, they can really just take that and and feed paranoia. And then the person to blame is the, you know, say their sibling who's trying to administer the estate. You know, it can also turn into people doing like a mad dash grab right after Mm. somebody dies. You Mm. get that somebody dies everybody's in town for the funeral or whatever's going to happen, memorial service. Some inevitably somebody gets into the house and gets away with all the good stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's bad. Tangible stuff with emotional value creates a lot of fights, Mm -hmm. sometimes even more so than just the money. So ways it plays out, you know, people try to file a lawsuit. People try to grab more things, just tangible items, People get impatient. They don't want to wait for the process to play out and for things to be distributed fairly. So then that's how it can turn ugly. Um, Or on the other side, the child doing the distributing of the estate can move very slowly and drag Mm -hmm. their feet. Like say they've been living in the house and then the parent dies and the house is supposed to go to all the kids. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody's going to be highly motivated to give their house away where they've been living. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, Mm -hmm. that creates a big problem. Is this kind of getting at what you're... you're Yeah, Barbara, I'll say like, again, I guess from what what we've seen is there's been a lot of differences around what the definition of fair is, right? So I think what you're pointing as a theme is that we all kind of feel like we're unfairly treated and unfairly treated might be that because it's timing, the things might be a little bit longer than or shorter or whatever. But, you know, to your point of, hey, if I'm living in that house... And now I have to give that away, then maybe that's, I feel that personally, that's unfair to me that I now have to settle in a state where the asset that I'm living in is got to go away and I have to figure out a new place to live. Maybe that's in perhaps in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic, which is probably not the easiest thing to, to be doing. So ab- absolutely. I think that what, that's kind of where we wanted to go was how do these things kind of start breaking up uh, families in a way, or how do they start fights? And I, I think what you said was true about, you know, fights probably don't just don't create from anything. There's a Genesis there that probably was there before kind of this event probably happened. So I appreciate that. I think it's great. Yeah, and can I just add something to that when mm-hmm. So for um, when I was teaching, one of the topics that I studied and taught was conflict resolution. And so, you know, I gave a lot of lectures and we did a lot of exercises on how to resolve conflict. And it's kind of funny. I kind of, I don't know, cracked myself up a little bit because toward the end of it, I really decided I don't believe in conflict resolution. Like, I don't think you can resolve it and make it go away. I really think it's more accurately named conflict management. And I think that's what we're talking about. When you have these family dynamics, 
you're not going to get everybody around the table and then everyone's going to walk away saying, I feel great now. That's not going to happen. But what you can do is you can manage the expectations. You can manage how people are going to react, you know, and that's where good estate planning comes in. You know, good communication is key to managing all of these conflicts. And that's how you're going to keep it from going to court. You're going to keep it from exploding. You're going to keep these family dynamics from eroding. And I think your point on conflict management, we actually had a previous episode where we had a communication expert come on, right? Talking about how do we have difficult conversations? Uh And of course, one of them is, hey, if we're, we're saying what our estate plan is, and that's one of the things we've kind of mentioned in previous episodes is, you know, obviously, if it's your estate plan, you can do with it what you will. You can communicate pieces that you want to or not. But, you know, if you're able to kind of express why and where and have the, it maybe after you're gone it allows at least that part to be somewhat at peace. Doesn't mean that they understood it or liked it or whatever, but there is a chance for that conversation to be had. And and I and that's where we were trying to go to this uh this lady was named Amy K Hutchins and she's uh, uh does career coaching but also communication coaching, and she was kind of giving some tips about saying you know here's why I'm feeling the certain way I am and here's maybe some ways to express it that is direct but allows room for negotiation that that is not just I feel like you've done this to me Barbara and it becomes accusatory or hurtful in the way we say things so we kind of like that it was a we kind of have an episode that kind of goes to where you're saying there in terms of again conflict management, maybe not necessarily like conflict avoidance or conflict resolution, but again, I thought those that's a really good point. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but the the idea of a complaint or possibly filing a lawsuit, if somebody doesn't agree with how the estate is being managed or the trust is being handled after somebody passes away. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that process, how somebody goes about doing that? Where do people get hung up on this process? So I'm going to give just a little bit of context so people understand the procedure because Perfect. Yeah. We, we often get phone calls and the phone call will be something along the lines of, you know, my father died, my brother's administering the estate, and I'm not getting anything right. that I'm supposed to get. You know, I'm supposed to get the house kind yeah. of thing. So the first thing that we do is look up on a, here's a great resource for people. They can just go to the internet and go to mainprobate.net. So you can go there, you pick a county, you can search for a name, and you can look to see if a probate matter has been opened on somebody. And so that's the first step, to see if if, if probate has even been opened. Mm-hmm. Um, and probate is not always necessary. So I'm going to, I feel like to answer that question, people need to know a few things. Yeah. When we die, and if you've already covered this in other segments, you can. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, this is when good. We, when we die. We have two categories of assets. We have what are known as probate assets, and those are the assets that pass under our will, right? So mm-hmm. to my spouse, if my spouse deceases me, to all my children, those are probate assets. We have non-probate assets, and as financial planners, that's what you probably deal a lot with, are non-probate assets. So those are assets that are passing by what's known as operation of law. And what that means is any asset that has a joint owner or a beneficiary, or in the case of bank accounts, transfer on death instructions, those assets are not going to pass under the will. So what people don't realize is sometimes probate's not even necessary. Mm. If somebody dies, a spouse, spouse number one dies, they own the house jointly, right? So the surviving spouse automatically owns the house. 
Um, they had an IRA and joint bank accounts. All the bank accounts go to the wife. The IRA pays out to the beneficiary designation. There's no need to probate. Every asset passed either through joint ownership or beneficiary designation. Okay, so then surviving spouse dies. And again, the IRA, she set up new beneficiaries. So IRA goes to the beneficiaries. But she didn't have a joint owner in her bank accounts now, and the house is in only her name. So in that case, the house and the bank accounts become joint assets. And what that means, what probate means, is you have to go to the probate court and turn in an original death certificate, the original will, you fill out forms, and the judge looks at the package and says, yes, all of this seems to be authentic. I am now going to appoint a personal representative to gather and administer the assets. I say that because it might seem obvious, but there's a big understanding, misunderstanding that if you have a will, probate's not necessary. And that's completely wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. a will is what probate is all about. If you don't probate the will, the will is meaningless. And the will is meaningless until somebody dies also, because we can change our will up, up until the day we die. So then if somebody wants to file a lawsuit, first they have to figure out if they're even entitled to something. Mm-hmm. Okay. At a minimum, they're entitled to some information if because they're an heir. And if you're the biological child of somebody, even if you're estranged, if you're a biological child of somebody, then you have a right to know if probate is opened. You have a right to see the mm-hmm. will. Um, you right to have a right to notice that probate is being opened. Let's say no probate was ever opened. Then it gets a little trickier. Let's say they had everything in a trust. Well, and that's one of the reasons people use trusts. And we can talk more about that later if we have time. One of the reasons people use trusts is because it has, it carries more privacy with it. It's not a public process. It doesn't become part of the public record that people can look up on mainprobate.net and see the will and see who's getting what and what the will says. But if they're not a beneficiary of the trust, then they don't have a right to see what's going on with the trust. You have to be a beneficiary and you have to be a qualified beneficiary, um, which means you're entitled to receive something at that point to get information. So to file, to bring a legal action, uh, let's say probate is opened. Let's say a will has been submitted. Let's say there are assets to pass under that will and a child has been disinherited. And the will says, I'm this child, child, you know, my child is disinherited, even though I love her. Nonetheless, she gets nothing. Well, that then they have to go back and to be able to prove that at the time that document was signed, the testator, the person signing the will, didn't have capacity or understand the impact of what they were signing or what they were doing. That's a very hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Or they have to show that it was done under duress or through fraud. So to go back in time and to be able to establish that, it's complicated. And mm-hmm. that's something that caregivers should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Because if an estate plan is redone in favor of the caregiver, you know, that that can raise suspicion. Like, was there duress? Were they enticed into doing this? So there are little safeguards that people can do when they're doing their estate plan. One is talking privately with the attorney, whoever is in place to be enriched by the estate plan should not be in the room, should not be Mm -hmm. part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It really should be between 
the attorney and the client, the individual. And it's even better, um, you know, even further safeguards would be to go so far as don't be the person who drives them to that meeting, right? Yeah. Like have somebody else take them to the attorney, things mm-hmm. like that. But but to file that lawsuit, if somebody does, number one, they should just get a consultation with an attorney and figure out if they're even entitled to information. And then if they are entitled to information, mm-hmm. get that information. And then if the information still supports that they may have a lawsuit on their hands, then they would need to find an attorney who practices litigation. Mm -hmm. And I point that out because, you know, all attorneys don't litigate and file lawsuits. So you would want somebody who specifically does probate litigation, which is a a kind of a little niche practice. It's not that I'm going to say it's not entirely common. Because it's not that often that these cases are worth litigating. Yeah. Um, mm. They they often can get resolved in a different way earlier, and that's through the information gathering to see what the person's even entitled to. But then once that happens and you're in court, then you've got just a regular litigation court where it's a matter of gathering evidence and presenting it and, um, and going through the litigation process. So, Barbara, I, I want to ask a little quick follow-up question to that mm-hmm. then is – because what you're saying is you basically if you're complaining about the will and you're complaining about what was left there, so establishing some sort of level of proof that you know, that, that the, the essentially the say my mom was uh, not really of capacity when she made that uh, will. How would you how would because you said it was obviously very rare. That sounds like it would be a really difficult thing to actually provide proof. That there's something that she was not of capacity in order when she made this document. And she always told me for 40 years every day that I was going to get the house. And then I got the will and then I ne- I didn't get the house. And I could see where that's a really tough thing to just um, say, but also to then prove. Yeah, you're right. And the uh, what, what they have to look at, it's called testamentary intent. And the standard for testamentary intent is fairly low. It means that the person needs to understand that they're signing their last will and testament. They need to understand what they own, you know, what their assets are, and they need to understand who they're giving their assets to. So if they understand all of that when the document is signed, then they've met testamentary intent. (laughs) And let's say somebody has dementia that comes and goes, you know, capacity that comes and goes. If they're in a good place, or mental illness is another example. If they're in a good place and at the time of the signing, they understand what they want to do, they've met it. Even if the next day, Mm. you know, they've kind of forgotten they even went to the lawyer's office yesterday or what they signed. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very hard thing to prove. I think to prove it, you would have to have, well, what would be very helpful if you have other examples where they were taken advantage of or yeah. encouraged to make gifts that were out of character for them. Or there's maybe, say you had a, a medical diagnosis that happened three days prior mm-hmm. and that the doctor was saying there's something about their capacity that was not there, maybe? It was something along those lines? Yeah, I know. That's where... It gets tricky because because dementia has such a range from beginning diagnosis to severe dementia, you know, and that's where it's tricky even for doctors. This whole it's a whole shades of gray kind of thing. And it's hard to figure out at what point do they no longer have that capacity to meet that testamentary intent. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So just a doctor's letter saying this person has dementia 
I, I feel like that would require a lot more evidence and a lot more explanation. Hmm. Barbara, I want to circle back and, and dive in on a topic you brought up a few moments ago. You gave us a great transition here, um, and that's trust. So I think a, a common thread the three of us always hear is, you know, my assets are in a trust, so I'm safe. My kids can't fight over it. Can you just kind of, is that true? Like, I, I'm based on your reaction, I think I know the answer to this, but can you elaborate on, you know, the truth Kids in that? Kids can fight over if, anything. <laughs> so that I, is one of our superpowers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess, like, can you just kind of go down this road of, you know, trust not they're not just free and clear and and out of the way clearly and you know how to trust still go bad with you know these these family relationships i am a strong believer and supporter of trust i think they give people much more control over their estate plan so i can understand why people say that Hmm. and i think they are right they have if they've got a trust they have taken steps to to create more rules and guidelines for things to play out the way they want them to play out. Mm-hmm. You cannot just set and forget a trust. You mm-hmm. need to revisit it. You need to revisit what is actually inside the trust. Mm-hmm. I'm sure in your work, you see this a lot where people will create, say, a living trust, and then they don't follow through with the funding piece. Yeah. And either assets are not in it or beneficiary designations have not been updated. So the assets completely bypass the trust. Yep. So just to, and you guys are all nodding your heads. So you know exactly <laughs> what I'm referring to. Yes. <laughs> but what, what this means for our audience is you can create a trust, but unless you get those assets inside the trust, the rules of that trust are not going to take control. Mm-hmm. And the way things get into the trust are one, you retitle them while you are alive into the name of the trust, or you have a beneficiary designation set up to where when you die, the assets will pay into the trust. Yeah. And that can just be so important important to check beneficiary designations. And so let me just talk about trusts a little bit before we go into beneficiary designations, which I think would be a very important topic. So in terms of litigation and fighting, it's a little easier with trusts because like I said, only beneficiaries are entitled to information about the trust. Mm -hmm. So you kind of narrow the field of who, who um, who can get into the fight to start with especially in the case of blended families. But trusts are ways, if you've got blended families, you can certainly do some some sophisticated planning. Let me back up a bit. So the overview, if you think of trust as the umbrella topic, trust can be designed to accomplish just about any number of things. You have very, The word trust does not, it's only a description of what it is. You can have trust to hold your guns. You can have trust sure. to take care of your pets after you die. You can have trust to protect your assets in the case of nursing home costs. You can have Mm -hmm. trust for special needs people to retain their government benefits. You can have trust to preserve family wealth for for generations. You can have, you know, the most common is living trust. So we'll just talk about that for a minute. A living trust is revocable living trust, meaning the assets still belong to the settler, the person creating the trust. And what they're doing in that case, they are, one, avoiding or minimizing probate, mm-hmm. which can save money and time. And they are can also set up 
planning for a spouse, say it's a second marriage, you can say, you know, my spouse gets to use any of this while my spouse is alive. And then when my spouse dies, the remainder will go to my biological children, you know, Mm. so, you know, that's called a, you know, you can use a Q-tip trust and we're not going to get too technical here, but you can do these things to keep your money in your lineal descent. You can also create gatekeepers to manage assets. If somebody has trouble managing money for whatever reason. Mental Mm -hmm. illness is often a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bipolar is a common reason to set up trust for kids because you can set up asset management. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that people fight about with trust would be one, if they're unhappy with the distributions and they want to fight Mm -hmm. with the trustee about the distributions, they want more. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would say, be careful about naming family members as trustees, because it changes the dynamic between, say, siblings. If you've got a sibling as trustee over another sibling's assets, they kind of lose that familial relationship and it becomes a business relationship that that can turn sour. And I think that's an important consideration, especially when it's mental illness is the motivation, because if somebody has mental illness, they need that family support. And if they're, it's evolving into an adversarial relationship because their sibling is also managing their money, that's hard because mm-hmm. they lose that family support and yeah. they're kind of at battle with their sibling to sure. make distributions and manage their assets. But I would say just because assets are in trust, it does not guarantee there won't be fighting. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing when people have trust is... I'm going to backtrack and say this again, confirm things are retitled into the trust Mm -hmm. or confirm beneficiary designations are correct. Because if assets don't get into the trust, the trust won't do any good. Yeah. And I'll, I'll echo that point, Barbara, is I think one of the, I think one of the best relationships that we have with the state planners and in tax professionals is when there's feedback loops, right? Is, you know, because sometimes any one of us um, can discover something with a common client Mm -hmm. and it's uh, okay. Now what we got to do is we got to work with you to then say, Hey, you know, you've created this really beautiful estate plan. It's got a will, it's got a trust. It's got all the, the necessary pieces in that. But it, it, it sometimes it just it's best when it's like, OK, now here's your to do's. Right. So we have you already have your inventory list of assets. We need to retitle all these assets into the trust. Here's all the things we need to do. And then us as us as the financial planner that are maybe overseeing or managing some of the assets is like, OK, well, if we know now that here's the here's the trust that you want to place these assets in then that kicks off a whole process for us to then journal assets from your name over to uh, now a new entity, open up a new account, a relationship with that entity that owns these assets. So we're able to get these things done and also kind of be the taskmaster on, hey, have you done that part yet? Or I just heard you bought a new vehicle and, you know, we talked about vehicles being part of this trust too. Have you also titled that vehicle to that trust? And all of those things where we're kind of being tactical and strategic, all kind of three parties together, it feels like when someone set up those relationships and they have really strong relationships across all three, I think that's when it feels like the strongest kind of outcomes happen, I guess, in our opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I want to I want to ask another question here, because, um, you know, if we're establishing a trust, one of the things that we we hear sometimes is, you know, I'm going through the people that would administer this trust if I pass or and I'm I'm the, the second to pass of me and my spouse, then, 
to what your point is that maybe there's nobody that could uh, be the trustee for this trust, or I'm really hesitant to kind of put these two uh, son and daughter or my kids against each other in that relationship as you described. Right. Mm -hmm. So enter kind of this, well, what other options do I have? And I want to just go through this uh, topic of independent trustees. Okay. So somebody outside of the family relationship that can kind of step in and serve as a role. Can you talk about how that works and who they are, right? Is it a friend? Is it an organization? Is it um, somebody independent that does this work? We're just seeing firms that are, are launching these services. So I'd like to, because I think from, I guess the question I want to ask is, from an independent party perspective, some of the concern we hear on the other side is I'm concerned about paying an independent party money to do a lot of this work. And if it is a lot of work and then draining the assets for then eventual distribution to the, the ultimate beneficiaries. So I guess my question is, again, I want to start with the basic, like okay. independent, like how does, how do these work? Who, who do you go to to figure that out? And then some pros and cons. Okay. I advocate professional trustees. I think they are a good idea. You can go to, there are some individuals who will serve as professional fiduciaries, just individuals, some small organizations, or you can go to banks. You know, banks have trust departments and they're willing to serve. They typically have a minimum asset level that people need to meet for them to serve as trustee. But the reason I advocate using professional trustees is they're going to do a good job, right? They know what they're doing. And the service you're paying for can save money down the road, for one. It can prevent fights down the road. Um, if a lot of this is about how to create an estate administration that will not result in litigation and fighting among kids, then have a professional do the job because then nobody can blame each other for for doing a poor job or invading the trust when maybe they shouldn't. But, you know, because a trustee, you're responsible for proper distributions. You're responsible for investments in managing the assets. You're responsible for filing the taxes on the trust and responsible for getting the forms out, K-1s out to the beneficiaries. So there's quite a bit of administrative work. And I think it's money well spent. In hiring a professional, I do think it's important. Understand what you will be paying. You know, have before entering into the arrangement, have a written engagement agreement. Understand what the fees are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, professionals are required. We're supposed to do that for our clients. There shouldn't be surprises. You know, as an attorney, and I suspect you guys face this as financial advisors, people want to sometimes, often, many times, feel like they want to do it on their own. And they also feel like, oh, I just have a quick question and they don't feel like paying for it. Well, I guess my my sort of response to that is that we professionals, we spend a lot of time, money, and effort learning about what we do. And when people say, I'm going to be my own trustee, or I'm going to manage my own money, or I'm going to download my estate planning documents from the internet, you don't know what you don't know. So it's money well spent to hire mm -hmm. professionals to do these jobs. I mean, these are complete industries, and people dedicate careers to doing things like being a trustee, because it's not something easy. It's it's not something you can go into blindly. It's the kind of thing you could click along for a few years and think everything's fine. Yeah. And then you've been doing something wrong. 
and somebody picks up on it and then mm-hmm. a liability arises that then goes back and captures all those years where you thought everything was fine. Like you're just setting yourself up or a loved one up for a potential liability, a potential conflict. Mm-hmm. And that could be avoided by hiring a professional to manage the assets. And Barbara, I want to make a point too. And I know you're talking about different parties that can do that level of service. And I think what I've kind of been seeing more is law firms doing that sort of service as well. Because you made the point about some bank uh, channels doing that. And that's where I came from, right? I came from the bank trust channel. So I really like that they can do that service. And there's a lot of situations where that makes a lot of sense. Is that I already have a relationship with this financial institution. It's been around since 1845. It's all those things are, are part of that relationship. But I think there's also times that it does make sense to split out the asset management part of this mm-hmm. from the independent uh, trustee work. Because, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that you know, when you start going, hey, I really made this decision because of stability of organization and what you can sometimes find is one service or the other may not be holding up um, uh, the bargain mm-hmm. at times. And it's really tough to ch- make that change when they're bundled together. So I think from a financial advisory perspective, one thing we say to our clients is we need to be easy to hire and easy to fire. If we're not doing our job, we shouldn't be working for you, right? We You shouldn't be continuing to pay you. So and we don't do that work. I want to make that point there. We don't do as the independent trustee work. But that's why I think having some independence around the parties allows things to be interchanged if things are not working out. And I think that's an important point I want to make. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. And when I said that the trustee manages the assets, in my mind, that's where the trustee is responsible for, say, hiring somebody like you all yep. to manage the assets and make sure it's being taken care of. And, but if this is a trust that lasts 40 years, right? And, you know, organizations and stability around process and things are going to change. And maybe all of a sudden, there, there maybe one year that doesn't fit, it allows that trustee the ability to go, I can go put this back out and I can make a change and I can find a better fit. And mm-hmm. I think that's important. So yeah, I wanted to, wanted to say that as well. Good point. Um, so what about putting a something like a camp into a trust? So something that you want to last for generations, right? And future use. Um, so what are your thoughts around that? And then what are some mistakes that people make um, with this kind of asset preservation where it's, you know, a real estate asset, not just a, a monetary asset? Yeah, right. And and in addition to being real estate, it's got great sentimental value. To exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. So this is this is a whole industry in the state of Maine, right? Um, yeah. Preserving the family camps. Mm-hmm. And I will also, we should just all acknowledge that the term camp in Maine is a very broad spectrum. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people's camps are nicer than their houses. So let's see. Yes, I do think trusts are a good mechanism to preserve camps mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. We'll start with one asset preservation. I'll point that out. Look, say, for example, you have, I work a lot with nursing home benefits also. Mm-hmm. And so Congress has created that if you're going to do estate planning five years before you need nursing home benefits, you can do that. And camps are something that they have such great sentimental value to people that if somebody needs to go in the nursing home, you know, they may be willing to sell their house and spend down the equity in their house, but often they still want to make sure the camp is available for the kids. Mm. And you can't do that. You know, 
if you end up the camp is an asset that ha ends up being consumed mm -hmm. to pay for long-term care. So a trust is something that can help preserve it against that. Mm -hmm. But also camps create a lot of family dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> and with a trust, you can set the guidelines. You know, it's fine like when mom and dad are alive and mom and dad are in charge of the camp and they right. take care of the camp and they pay all the bills and right. you just check with mom and dad to see when you can use the camp. But then when mom and dad are gone, who's going to do all that? So if you have a trust, it can spell out the rules on, it can get detailed. Like, so the mistakes are if you don't address these questions, but you can spell yeah. out what's the rotation that people get to pick the week that they want to use yeah. the camp. Mm -hmm. yeah. How much money does everyone need to contribute every year to help pay for the camp? What happens if somebody fails to make their payment to the camp? How, how do you deal with that? What if somebody doesn't want to be part of the camp anymore, mm -hmm. so they don't want to pay money anymore? How do you handle that? One thing that I have seen come up I think a couple of times just in the past year, the parents went through all kinds of acrobatics, creating a trust and locking it down so the kids would have it for generations. And the kids live elsewhere. Like the kids mm. didn't even want the camp. Like to mm -hmm. them, it felt like they were being forced to own and pay for this real estate they really didn't want. So that's another, once again, communication is key. Number one, yeah. make sure keeping the camp in the family is even a priority for the family. Yeah. Often it is, but just confirm yeah. it because sometimes it's not. Sure. And then spell, work on a document. You can do a trust, figuring out how are we going to resolve all these issues, scheduling, payment, who gets to sell, who gets to vote, right? Because you right. vote on things like, do we put on a new roof this year or not? You know, let's take a vote. Right. You can spell out who has voting rights. And the trust can take care of all of that. And it can also give the asset preservation and it's important because if we think about as each generation has children, the ownership pieces of that property become more and more fragmented. Right. And if it's not in a trust, that can become a real estate nightmare too, where you yes. have all these little pieces mm. owned by people scattered all over the country. Mm. Yes. So I think a family camp is a definite candidate for use in a trust. Yeah. Barbara, I want to ask a question to you about, uh, we, we've kind of spent a, a lot of time on the, the trust side and on the state side and probate and going to the top down. I, I think one of the things was we kind of get for questions is, Really, is are there certain family dynamics? Are there certain family situations that maybe are present in my life that should be maybe lead to thinking towards that a little bit more? So when I really ask the question about what sort of common family situations, family dynamics, relationships, structures that you would see or that you would identify as being most likely to have a challenge to state? So if I'm sitting down talking to somebody and to kind of think about this, I would think about, you know, what are what are red flags for mm. me that, that I think we should address and talk through and make sure. And I know I've mentioned this a lot, but mental illness, mm. mental illness, if somebody in the family has mental illness, that takes definite planning, planning because that person can often be disruptive to the rest of the family or disruptive to surviving siblings. Mental illness can come and go. So mm -hmm. if the person's in a good place, the parents might be like, oh, she's doing fine. I don't feel the need to do something. But then the medications stop and somebody drops mm -hmm. down. You need to have safety nets in place for when that person is in a low low place to give them the supports they need till they get back up. 
So uh, if there's any mental illness, that's a definite red flag that needs attention. Special needs. If anybody is on any kind of disability or using main care for health insurance, or they have a child with disability that requires special attention, not because it's going to be adversarial, but because it can be a very expensive mistake to not plan around somebody's special needs. And that could be its own, its own topic. Even there's a lot Mm -hmm. there, but, but because people are so dependent on main care for health insurance, when they've got a special need, like you've got to make sure to plan around that. So let's see, mental illness, special needs. If you've got ongoing adversity within the family, just people not getting along for whatever reason, or you've also got where the parent does want to make an unequal distribution, and for very good reason. Um, A common reason might be one child's in California, one child is in Maine, taking them to all their doctor's appointments, living with them, cooking for them, you know. They parents often want to compensate for that kind of attention and care. So if it's going to be an unequal distribution, that needs to be tended mm-hmm. to and planned planned for because um again, there's that the potential for the California child to feel slighted yeah. and that can create sure. a problem. Businesses. We really haven't talked about that, but you know, if there's an ongoing business, you know, planning around what the kids' expectations are with the business, who's going to be involved how that's going to be, if it's going to be wound down, how to wind it down, that could be another issue. Oh, and then lifetime gifting, that can could be another red flag. If, say, a parent has been especially helpful to one child, then the, the siblings may expect that the estate will be equalized, right? But say the child gets $100,000 to buy a house while mom's alive. Well, the siblings may expect, well, when mom dies, they're going to get 100000 less. And that's not always the case. So right. everyone should be informed and have communications about how that's going to play out. And it's good to do that before death so everybody doesn't have to do it when they're in this heightened state of anxiety after death. And I want to make a point, Barbara, is mm-hmm. I think it's it's something where probably the better the communication lines are within the family, probably the the less conflict there might be in some of these situations, right? And the, the kind of thing, if we have trouble communicating with each other, especially with I'm seeing parents gift um, X number of dollars to a sibling, but I'm not getting it, but I assume that I'm going to be equalized. Mm-hmm. But maybe parent had did not even put two, two thoughts into that. Right. Because maybe they thought just thought, hey, well, they need help. I'm able to help them. I don't need the money right now. I can go ahead and do that. But, you know, when when things pass, it's going to be 50 50 and it'll be equalized. Yeah. Right. It just yeah. I, I think things were maybe we just don't communicate those things and it just comes up with uh you know, that is a really fair point, and I probably didn't even think of your vantage that way. And yeah, you, you have us. So I guess the more we're kind of communicating, you're probably going to avoid some of these uh, obviously issues as well, right? Yeah, right, right. Communication. Yeah. And even one, one other thing that you just made me think of is um, end of life decisions. That can be a time when it breaks down, um, where kids kids are arguing about what kind of care the parent needs. Should the parent stay in the home? Should the parent have in-home care? Is it time to go to the nursing home? How much is that going to cost? These also create end-of-life stress that then spill over into um, adversarial relationships after death. So again, good communication can take care of that. 
good planning on the healthcare directive and just talking these things through as a family um, before you're in crisis and prevent the breakdown. So Barbara, we have reached the portion of our podcast that is the end. Um, we, we have one final question for you. Uh, we like to la- ask every single one of our guests this question. So the name of the show is Retirement Success in Maine Podcast. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, what do you or how do you define retirement success? Like what will be a successful retirement in your eyes? I like this question. Retirement success for me would be, I think, to have big family dinners or big family meals, you know, to have, (laughs) uh, I've got two boys. And if they end up staying within a reasonable distance to me to be able to have big family meals and have them around. And then, uh, and then when we can travel again, you know, do some traveling with my husband. Yeah. So I think just some nice big family meals because I like to cook and Christ. have my kids around and some traveling. That would be a successful retirement for me. Well, Barbara, that sounds perfect. And was... you'll have to invite us over for that <laughs> extended <laughs> dinner. Uh, but thank you again for, for being on our show today. Again, for us, uh, even personally, learning a lot more about the estate planning process. Again, kind of this estate planning 2.0 in, in our eyes. Uh, really helpful to get even a little bit more advanced uh, knowledge. Again, appreciate your expertise and what you're lending to our show. So uh, thank you for coming on and we'll talk to you next time. Great. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Really happy to have Barbara Slishman on the show today. Uh, again, kind of this uh, for us, I think for our show, a little bit of estate planning 2.0 or 201, however you want to <laughs> kind of term it. But good, uh, good to get a little bit, a little bit more in depth, right? A little other just mm-hmm. advanced kind of level of kind of estate planning, trust administration, kind of trust conversation there, like what are they and how they break. So love, love what she brought to the table here, because I know you can obviously hear it from her side, the level of expertise, mm-hmm. the things she's working on a day-to-day basis. So want to always, as, as, as always, highlight things that we think you, you might want to take away from this show. Um, so perhaps, Abby, you want to start with, uh, with a takeaway that you have? Yeah, definitely. So I really liked her conversation about the importance of actually putting assets in a trust, right? Because if assets are not in a trust, then the trust doesn't really exist. So your planning and all of your setting up for the trust really kind of goes out the window unless you put assets in it, whether you name it now or as beneficiary when you pass away. So I think that's something really important. And we see it a lot um, in our business as people not putting things in the trust. So I really think that was a good point that she made. Um, and just kind of wanted to emphasize that again. It's um, I'll use a little sports analogy here. It is literally like uh, pitching a shutout for eight innings, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden you start giving up home runs in the ninth. So it's like you know you, exactly. you, you you do all this stuff to win the game, and then you shoot yourself in the foot to lose it. So that that is something, right. and it really is not it's not that hard of a thing to do, but it feels like once I have a signed document in place, that now I'm done. Yeah, right. It feels right. completed, and and honestly, there's still some more work to be done. So that, that was a really good takeaway. Curtis, from your side, anything that you thought was a, was a really good thing to highlight today? Yeah, um, I really liked kind of a an overarching theme here with Barbara. She was just talking about, and I think she opened with it, was the importance of just kind of planning for the worst. You know, it may not be fun, but to think about all the ways things can go wrong, whether it's, you know, while you're sitting down that first day trying to write, get your will written and get an estate plan made, or as you progress, you know, throughout your life and there's adjustments that may or may not need to be made, but just to, and again, it's not fun to think about, you know, it's easy to say, oh, my kids would never fight. They love each other. But I think she really emphasized how important it is to say, well, what if they do? How can we make sure it goes smoothly? 
you know, if someday they don't get along or, or there's other people in the mix, there's spouses, there's remarriages, there's all these things that can go wrong. And I think it's really important, as she stated, to, to take those into consideration, even if you don't think right now they apply. Yeah, and life happens, right? And, yeah. and I, I think one of the points she was making was let's pl- try to plan for disaster outcome, disastrous outcomes and try to protect against those things happening. Mm-hmm. And things like really well-crafted estate plans and really well-crafted trust documents allow you to do that. Right. So, I, again, I think that's where the those conversations between you and the estate planner are really important that because I, I think it's really tough to share that hey i am kind of concerned about my son and my daughter mm-hmm. who really don't get along well the estate planner needs to know that right, right. so if you don't share those right. things they're not going to plan for it so right. it feels very open it feels very vulnerable trust us I, I, we know that too uh, but it those are necessary and important things to really point out to uh, to those professionals so that they can help you with it I want to highlight too is the idea we talked about was independent trustees on our trusts, right? Is that sometimes it's just very easy to go, you know, the responsible one of my kids is this one. And I think that's the one I'm just going to name to be the executor or the trustee of these things. And I think that's, that can sometimes be the the simple and easy answer. And sometimes it's the right answer, yeah. uh, but sometimes that's not the right answer. And I, I think one thing that Barbara really walked us through was that idea of an independent trustee and when they work and then when they don't. And, yeah. and just kind of, again, gauging that of, again, she's saying, look, it, it does cost some money because you're getting that expertise. They're probably also might be doing things in a more expeditious manner. Right. Is maybe if you hired the trustee was the was the son or daughter and they've never been a trustee before. Right. What if it takes them four or five hours to do something because they don't really know how to do all this? They've never done it. Right. Versus right. you hire an independent trustee. Maybe it takes them 15 to 30 minutes to get something done. But it looks like on paper that that's a more expensive thing. So her point of that, maybe it isn't. Maybe it does help avoid other conflicts. Maybe it uh, it does things. I did wanted to make that point of two is, you know, having somebody that is independent, maybe not doing other services for the trust is maybe helpful as well. That, yes. um, you know, if there's somebody like, you know, I've seen situations where investment managers really maybe are not doing a very good job in man- managing the money. They're not investing it well. Really tough to break up the trustee and the investment management together because the trustee part is really kind of set in stone and really kind of structured in place. So I kind of like having those separated out was, uh, was something that I, I like that we were able to talk about today, yeah. but good to uh, obviously have all this conversation. Um, again, I, I think we could, we could go with lots of different ways with this, even do a 3.0 at some point, <laughs> but uh, for now, uh, Barbara also gave us some uh, a helpful URL to look up some probate. Mm-hmm. We will have that on our blog and, uh, and a few more resources, especially about Barbara and her practice. So to find more resources, you can go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash three nine. So again, uh, blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash three nine. Find this blog there, the transcript, all the other information you need. Um, Love to hear from you. If you found this useful, let us know. Happy Happy to get some feedback, but appreciate you tuning in and catch you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. 
While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.